Hello, welcome to the New River Church Podcast. We're so pleased to have you join us today. We hope that today's message uplifts and inspires you. If you would like to learn some more about New River Church and what we're all about, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. in uh, Nehemiah, and uh, I'll jump right in at Nehemiah chapter 1. But before uh, we do so, we want to take a running start at this because uh, we want to think about the history of Israel. And from the very beginning, God called the people of Israel out of the world. It was nothing special or unique about them. God just said, hey, I'm going to bring a people unto myself I'm going to display my glory. I'm going to work in their life in such a way that they're obedient to me. And that way they're going to serve as a beacon or a lighthouse on a hill showing people, although there's many different avenues in life that you can traverse, at the end of the day, nothing's really going to bring joy and fulfillment to you apart from God. Uh, That whole uh, mindset was emphasized in Scripture through John where said uh, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branch, and if a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's always been the message that God has sent out to people, is apart from me, you really can't do a whole lot, and you'll never find purpose and meaning in life apart from a right relationship with our Creator and our Father in heaven. And so we know that God chose the people, brought them unto Himself, but we also know if we spend enough time reading history and reading the Old Testament, that time and time and time again, the people that He chose rejected Him. He sent prophet after prophet, priest after priest. He taught, uh, brought teacher after teacher, judge after judge. Time and time and time and time again, people rebuffed and rejected the one true God, their creator. When I read that and I think about it, I think about kind of when you, uh, not to be too graphic here, but you flush the toilet and it just kind of circles down, right? And then goes down the dark hole and you don't really know uh, what happens afterwards. And that's kind of the down roll, downward spiral of God's people. They just keep going round and round and round and round and the circle gets tighter and tighter and tighter and then boom. Where are they? Right? God made a promise to Abraham. Leave everything familiar to you, your comfort, your security, your stability, your uh, extended family, your friends, your community. Uh, uh, He wasn't a believer at the time, but leave everything and follow me, and I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you. And it wasn't so much about the place as it was the journey and God's work in Abraham's life over several years, if not decades, to come to that place. And we see the downward spiral, and the people of Israel were in a very dark place during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Not a whole lot of promise was there. God had made a promise to the people, and people were trying to eke out a living in some dire situations and circumstances, and they were trying to recapture or reclaim or find or answer the question, what is it that God wants to do in us and through us? And even though times are horrible, God is always there, is He not? Even though we uh, 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 make poor decisions and we bring this upon ourselves, God is still merciful. That's what's absolutely amazing about God. I'm, I'm thinking if I was a father, and uh, if I was a father 
If I was, if I, if, how do I say this? If I was a father of me, I would have worn out at some grace. I would have gone, you know, I, it's kind of like, what's the, what's, the, what's the extent of this mercy and grace that I can share with this guy? He's just, he's just stubborn. He's stiff-necked. He's a slow learner. Yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, I went to school of hard knocks where the school colors are black and blue. So there's two ways that we can learn things in life. We can learn them the easy way or the hard way. So I'm much like the chosen people. I like to learn things. I'm getting better at this, but I like to learn things typically the hard way. And what's really amazing is even though God's people rejected him and went their own way, God was always there holding out the promise. See, that's what's amazing about God is I can forget the promise. I can forget the mission. I can forget the calling. I can forget the, 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 the vision. I can forget that. That's my tendency is to get distracted and start forgetting. But God never forgets, and he's tenacious, and he never gives up. And in the life of the people of Israel, and in my life and in your life, you can look at hard times, dark times, challenging times, and God's always there holding out the vision, always trying to draw us and woo us back to the original word. And the word that he gave through the prophet uh, Jeremiah to his people is found in Jeremiah 29 uh, verses 10 and 11, some of my favorite verses. And God's people have been in exile for about 70 years here under the reign and rule of a horrible dictator by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the promise that God continues to hold out to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. I'll show up and I'll take care of you as I promised. And I will bring you home. This is after 70 years. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. Now, this is a great reminder, isn't it? Because there's times in my life where I actually uh, uh, spend time questioning and doubting God. There's times in my life when uh, God seems distant or silent or things aren't going the way that I had anticipated or planned or uh, what have you. Things just aren't shaking out the way that I had anticipated. And I have a tendency to back up and pull away and actually think to myself, and I've said this out loud, God, do you really know what you're doing? Who here is honest enough to say that they, at the very least, they've thought that, if not actually prayed that? God, come on, let's be, let's be honest, God. I'm looking at the circumstances of situations. The, the, the weight of evidence is so against this. Do you really understand? Do you really know what you're doing? And this is the wrestling match that we have, God, as we go through seasons of life, because a challenge arises. And how do we respond to that challenge? And God, unfortunately, doesn't move according to our calendar. He doesn't do a whole lot of work in 10 minutes after that first prayer. He kind of drags things out and stretches it out according to his timing. And if we're faithful and we're obedient and we walk with him long enough, boom, the atmosphere and the climate is perfect for his arrival and his work. It's kind of like dew. Right? You wake up in the morning, 
Walk out the front door, you notice the dew is on the grass. How did it get there? It's the perfect climate for the dew just to show up. And that's what God wanted to do in the life of his people. He wanted to bring them to a place of trust and obedience so that the climate and the environment would be created such that he could show up and show out. Because, yes, it was about a place in Jerusalem, but more importantly, it's about the people and the heart of the people. I kind of get wrapped up with, uh, I'm in the business world, so we have uh, monthly meetings, quarterly meetings with my manager, and we're checking the boxes, and we're numbering the widgets, and I get caught up in, okay, this is the goal, let's achieve it. This is the next goal, this is achieve. My manager says, hey, Dave, you got to slow down. Okay, I don't have enough goals on the table for you, so let's kind of slow this down a little. I'm the, guy, I'm the guy that the coworkers would say, hey, you need to slow down. You're making the rest of us look kind of slow. You're making us kind of lazy. And I get that uh, phone call or email from time to time. So I'm trying to be a better job at this and understanding, listen, it's not about the goals. And it's not even about the destination, It's that I'm a completely different person from point A to point B to C to D. That upon arrival, forget the goals, I'm just a different person. And that's why God puts visions and missions in our heart as individuals. And that's why he embeds it in the life of a community of believers, the church. It's because, yes, We have to have work to do, and there has to be goals. But the end game is this, and this is what Jesus, this is what our maker, God in heaven, is really after, is that when we draw our last breath, that he looks down and he says, my goodness, look at the amazing work that we've done in this person's life. They're up there high-fiving each other. Can you believe it? Can you believe that rascal 30 years ago? Can you believe that uh, by grace through faith alone, that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that we, we gather that up and we believe that and we let it work in our mind and our will and our emotions, that when we draw our last breath, that Jesus says, I told you you wouldn't recognize him. I went to cross for that. I laid my life down for that. This is amazing grace. This is abundant, more more than we deserve, the mercy that he pours out from the cross in our daily walk with him. God in in heaven, the Father in heaven is going to look down and say, I don't even recognize the boy any longer. What happened? And they're just up there high five, all the saints before high five and saying, Great work, great work, Jesus, great work. Holy, no, Holy Spirit is doing backflips over the way that he gets a hold of our hearts and our souls and does a deeper work and really woos us and draws us into the life that Jesus died on the cross for. So with that, we're going to jump into Nehemiah in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the first talking point or the first takeaway is this. And really, this is the foundation of uh, this morning's message. Because if we don't get this, uh, really, we just kind of circle back and, and uh, go over this over and over and over again. Because this, is, this principle is really what's going to bring meaning to your life and my life. I can attest. I could stand up here for six hours, not that you want that, and tell you story after story 
after a story of how God has shown me something, invited me to be a part of something, and with time and patience and faithfulness and obedience, that it slowly began to grow and multiply. And it's the same story that I want to share with you, that each and every one of you here this morning has promise. That brother yesterday morning uh, at our men's uh, breakfast, if you missed it, you really missed out. Uh, Spirit-led, uh, Jesus-centered. Just, uh, I went up to him afterwards and said, hey, brother, I just appreciate the straight talk. There's no window dressing on this, just straight talk. He just unwrapped it and laid it out and made no excuses or apologies whatsoever. And he did it in a very loving, kind, gentle way. But it was one of these little pokes in the ribs. It was man up, get up, get moving, get abiding, trust and obey. Understand that you have tremendous untapped potential in and through a life lived alongside Jesus Christ. So the first takeaway point here this morning is this. The problems in the world that break your heart are often the very things that God wants you to take on. The problems in the world that break your heart are often the very things that God wants you to take on. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is Nehemiah, never been to Jerusalem. Uh, he was uh, pretty much born and raised up under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And his brother comes to him uh, after a period of time and is giving him a report of Jerusalem, the situation in Jerusalem. On three separate occasions, Nebuchadnezzar, the most evil man on the face of the planet, invaded God's people three different occasions and ransacked and destroyed the streets, the buildings, the temple, and took the best and brightest people out of Jerusalem into Babylon to integrate them into their society only to expand and build up an evil kingdom. And the report comes back from Jerusalem to Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, and here's the report. One of my brothers had just arrived from Judah with some fellow Jews. I asked them about the conditions among the Jews there who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They told me the exile survivors are in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. The wall of Jerusalem is still rubble, and the city gates are still cinders, in a sense, still smoking from the fire. And here's Nehemiah's response. He's never been there, okay? He's never been there, and here's his response to the news coming out of Jerusalem some 70 years later. I heard this. Listen, if you're going to respond to God's work in your life, you're going to have to, and it seems simple, you're going to have to hear him. You're going to have to be in a situation or you're going to have to put yourself in a place over and over and over again where you can hear him. Life is ugly. Life is messing. Life is demanding. And we get tugged and pushed and pulled in all different directions. And if we're ever going to count for the kingdom of Christ, we have to put ourselves over and over and over again in a situation where we can be still. And know, and I'm not talking about knowing about someone, be still and know that I am God. And here's the report, and we already read the report, but here's Nia's response from this report. I heard this and I sat 
down. It wasn't one of these situations where somebody comes to you uh, with bad news and you uh, already have a place that you got to be in 10 minutes and you're rushed and you're already behind on your work and you say to that individual, well, yeah, that's all nice and I feel for you. And then that, uh, of course, the, 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 uh, the party in Christianese is, I'm going to pray about that for you. I'm going to pray with you for that. But we go on about our business and we're not really disturbed. We're not turned inside out by the burden and the pain and the suffering, the loss on the part of another human being. But not Nehemiah. He sat down. He stopped everything and he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days and he fasted and he prayed before who? The God of heaven. And if you put the calendar together, sister, it was 40 days so this is not a one and done. This is not a small group. This is not a prayer meeting. This guy is in agony. His soul is tortured. And he's uh, distraught over a place that he's never been to. But what he does know is I'm hearing from God, and God's going to bring the people and the resources together to accomplish something that's going to add and bring greater glory to the one true God among all the nations. He's a cupbearer. I'm just getting warmed up here, sister. And uh, think about the cupbearer, uh, you know, the, the cupbearer. Now, I know all of you here today. I know, I know me. I have a vested interest in the coronation of King Charles, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you just uh, cleared your schedule to watch King Charles uh, be uh, indoctrinated. What, what's the proper word here, Glenn? <laughs> Coronate, coronated. See, that was a setup. Now we know how our pastor spent his Saturday morning. He was watching the coronation of the King of England. But thanks, gripping. Now, I caught some of it by mistake because I was actually uh, turning on the TV to catch up on the sports. I don't watch sports throughout the week, and I wanted to catch up on the Red Sox and the Celtics and uh, teams that I like and boo against teams that I don't like. And I hit the clicker, and I, I got to think, 199 channels out of 200 channels were showing the coronation. So there was no way to escape this thing. But the pageantry, and I... I'll be honest with you, I kind of think it's all silly and outdated. I mean, personally, maybe that's because I'm not English and I'm American, you know. They're still struggling with the fact that we uh, beat them up and beat them out of here. So they're still hanging on to some history there. But the point is, is everything was planned and plotted out to perfection. I mean, we were standing up, we were sitting down, we were singing, we were praying. Great message, by the way, if you watch it. I did listen to the message. I'm thinking, my goodness, there is a Christian among the Episcopalians in the Church of England, but nonetheless, it was a nice ceremony. But Nehemiah, that was not his situation. He was ripped up out of his, uh, you know, he was ripped, he was robbed of his culture. He was robbed of his identity. And he is the cupbearer to the most evil man on the face of the planet. If he made one wrong move, if he uh, insulted anybody in the court or insulted Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he would be punished severely if not pushed to death. Put to death. So he had to kind of tiptoe around and be Nebuchadnezzar's guinea pig. So basically, when the food and the drink came to the king, it was his role or his responsibility that I'm going to taste test this. I'm going to try it out first. And everybody, when he'd sip from the cup, he'd take a sip from the cup, everybody would go, 
He's still standing. He's still alert. He's still awake. All right, King, go ahead, right? And he takes something off the plate and he eat it. And, you know, he wasn't rushing out to the bathroom. He wasn't asking for the Imodium ID. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't getting sick. So it was okay for the king to drink from the cup and eat from the plate. So over time, they built a relationship, although it wasn't intimate. You couldn't, certainly, you couldn't call them good friends. But Nehemiah became an advisor to the king, right? And on one particular day, he comes in before the king, and the king says to him, well, why, are you, why you got sad face? Why are you so upset? Why are you so uh, doom and gloom? You're not your normal uh, charismatic Nehemiah, right? You're not coming in with your hands up praising the Lord. Something's wrong with this guy. Something's really got him down. And so Nehemiah seizes the opportunity, and again, this is after 40 days, or four months, my mistake. This is after 40 months of wrestling over what he's heard. And he's waiting for God to just kind of open the door because he's been in prayer and he has a vision on his heart to share with Nebuchadnezzar the work that God is doing in his life and how God wants to use him back home among his family and friends and God's chosen people. Listen, uh, appalling. Death. Destruction. I can kind of, I, I, I think I got a glimpse of this because uh, several years back, uh, I was asked to travel back and forth to Baltimore for about six months. And so I would catch the Amtrak. I'd go down on a Monday, work, stay the night, work Tuesday, catch Amtrak and come back. And this went on for about six months. Somebody had left their position at a hospital down there and is an important plan. And to say, hey, listen, can you step in for six months? We'll do the interviewing and the hiring, and then we'll turn the training over to you. Give us six months of your time, and we'll bring somebody up to speed, and you can come back uh, uh, your way and not travel to, back and forth to Baltimore each week. Uh, during that time, where uh, many cities were being uh, burned down, quite frankly, many cities, riots, right? Uh, clash of values, clash of ideas, uh, 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 differences of opinions, things like that. And I'm not taking a side, I'm just saying there's a period of history in our country where uh, cities were being set afire. And Baltimore was one of them. And I remember the first time that I went down to Baltimore, I come into the train station, I go out and I hail a cab, and I was about a 20-minute ride uh, to my work site. And I was absolutely taken back uh, for 20 minutes. Storefront after storefront after storefront was totally destroyed. Uh, those metal, those corrugated metal doors were pulled down, and one, two, and three locks weren't enough on this. And it was graffiti. Uh, people had uh, uh, people had written down prayers of those that had, may have passed away on those particular sites. They had set fire to many of these businesses, and the flames had scorched the side and the top of the doors. And so it was absolutely appalling because. Baltimore is a beautiful city. It's got uh, a rich history. And to spend 20 minutes in a cab looking at both sides of the street, seeing it totally destroyed. And the sad thing is, is when these businesses were destroyed, people lost hope and had no place to go. So it was not uncommon to pull up at the stoplight and see people that were strung out on drugs and alcohol just milling around. Guys my age that should have been employed and building up the community had no hope. 
and they had no place to go, and they were embedded, you know, they were just uh, uh, the stronghold of drugs and alcohol had seized and taken control of their lives. So it wasn't uncommon to see people yelling and arguing, and on more than one occasion, I sat in the cab, and I watched people actually exchange punches, and they were going at it at the uh, crossroads of different intersections all throughout Baltimore. And I thought, this is absolutely pitiful. This is, this, is, uh, this is not God's best for society. This is not how we're supposed to live. This is not how we're supposed to talk and treat one another. And I was just really taken back by the destruction of Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. So I can somewhat think, and maybe I'm stretching it here and you can hold me accountable, but I kind of get a glimpse into what Jerusalem could possibly look like and the burden that was placed on Nehemiah's heart having received such a terrible uh, report uh, from his brother coming back. Now, his response. Broken, weeping, and praying. Now, I want to tell you a story about two uh, gentlemen. I love fishing. I love fishing stories. I got a lot of fishing stories. If you spend any time with me and I start telling you fishing stories, the fish kind of get a little bigger uh, with each story. Uh, Keith is like that. I've gone fishing with Keith and I'll tell him a story. Well, you know, and we don't, you know, when I fish, we don't stand next to each other, right? We're fly fishing, so we get some distance. So I'll go up to Keith and I'll say, hey, Keith, you know, I caught a rainbow trout and it was about this big. And Keith, I mean, he doesn't have to think about it. He's just a natural storyteller. And Keith would just come out and say, well, that's really good, David, but I caught three this big. See, I can't debate with him. I can't argue with him because we're not standing next to each other. So I just got to assume that he's an obedient Christian who's telling the truth. But all kidding aside, the stories get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So there were these two buddies, and they liked to ice fish together. And so on one particular uh, cold day, they both got in the truck, and they had their equipment, and they went out to the lake where they were going to do some ice fishing. And the first gentleman got out of the truck, and he went over, and he got the router out, the router out, and he dug a hole about the size of a man cover. Just They've done it year after year after year. They probably fished hundreds of times together. And he drills out a hole about the size of the manhole. He opens up his chair. He sits down and he drops his line. Well, the other gentleman says, I'm going to do something a little different this year. So he walks about 100 yards further than the first guy. And he breaks out a chainsaw. He probably spends about two or three hours carving out a hole that's about 50 yards long in the shape of a whale. Now, we laugh and chuckle and we think, you know, this guy's wasting a lot of time. But you got to respect somebody that wants to do something different because what they've always done before isn't prospering and it's not bearing fruit. And you know what the definition of insanity is? It's doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and expecting different results. We do it. Businesses do it. Churches do it. We're just afraid of something new, a different template, a different pattern, a different vision, a different mission, a different kind of seer. And we kind of laugh and chuckle, and we think, this guy's off his rocker. This guy is a dreamer. He is no good for us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't behave like us. He doesn't talk 
like us. And as a matter of fact, when we size him up, he wouldn't fit in with us. Let me tell you something. With Jesus, that's a great place to go. Because there's far too many people, Christians and churches today, that just want to be cookie cutter. They just want to be like the next church next to them. And what they're really doing is they're trying to compete with somebody else's vision as opposed to receiving and completing the very vision that God has for them as a person and a church as a whole. And it's high time that God's people would stand up and get it right and be plugged in to God's Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, abiding in the living Word of God and walking in collaboration and unity and marching out like we're the army, subduing what is around us, not for our greater good, not for our success, not for our prosperity, but we are to have dominion for the sole purpose of raising up the glory of Jesus Christ. We have that great promise. If I, being Jesus, is lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. So if you ever want to know what the greater vision is, it's lifting Jesus up right? If I lift myself up, you're going to be disappointed, right? If I lift anybody else up in this room, if I bow down and I worship and I lift up anybody else in this church as a whole, you're going to be disappointed. Why? We're all sinners. We all have flaws. We all have shortcomings. I'm not worthy of worship, and you're not worthy of worship. And that's why we exist, is to worship him and bring glory and honor to the one true God in heaven. So listen, what keeps you up at night? What burdens you at night? You ever been tossing and turning in bed in the middle of the night, and you go, oh my goodness, it, mu it must it must have been it must have been the spicy food. I can't sleep. I gotta get I gotta go get an Alka Seltzer. You ever laid there and you can lay in bed and you can come up with any number of reasons why I can't sleep. I had a Coke at 9, 8, 9 p.m. or I had a spicy meal. We can kind of come up with all kinds of excuses. I want to encourage you this. Next time you're tossing and turning in bed, and I don't care what time of the morning or the day it is, okay, if he's stirring and you're tossing and you're turning, get up out of bed and get a pad and a pencil and just say, hey, God, are you trying to say something to me? Is this your way of cutting out all the noise and the busyness of the day and the world around me? Is this your way of saying, I just want to have some quality time? with you. There's something so important. I'm willing to wake you up in the middle of the night. I want to challenge and encourage you that if you're tossing and turning, forget all those other reasons. Maybe just pop up and say, hey God, are you trying to say something to me? Are you trying to show something to, to me? Are you asking me to respond to something? Let me ask you this. What keeps you up at night? If somebody came to you and they gave you a report about a particular situation, what would cause you to stop in your tracks and take a seat for a, 
uh, extended duration of time and just be still and ask them, what do you want to show me? What do you want me to jot down? What door of opportunity are you opening up to me? What really keeps you up at night? What do you toss and turn about? Anybody care to share openly? It's simply a rhetorical question, but is there something that disturbs you? Hmm? Something that really gets up in your heart and your soul, kind of messes you up and twists you? I'm going to tell you a couple of mine. Uh, one uh, would be people that are labeled dregs of society. Uh, people, for the most part, have been cast aside as zeros or losers. You know who I'm talking about. You walk the streets of Boston or New York City or downtown Hartford or even Manchester, for that matter, and you look at them and you go, whoo, man, they're not dressed for success. And I'm not really picking up a whole lot of potential out of this person. Right? Dismissed, forgotten, no potential, no life. We've met them all, have we not? They're in survival mode. They're just trying to find three hots and a cot. They're just trying to get by from meal to meal to meal to bed, to meal to meal to meal to bed. That keeps me up at night. That, that, that just really uh, gets a hold of my uh, soul. Because uh, I've been there. I've been homeless twice. I had a time in my life about 30 years ago where I destroyed everything. And I was quite successful at that point in time. I was a general manager of a restaurant, and I was making 75000 a year 30 years ago. That's success. When you work your way up, you're managing 100 people, and you're the number one uh, Tex-Mex restaurant in South Florida. Man, that's a high-level success. And I destroyed it completely and walked away in the rubble Lost my apartment. Family didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I was homeless. And I met Jesus. And I met a chairman of the deacon by the name of Brian Evans that loved Jesus and loved God's word. And he brought me into his house for a year and discipled me. This guy was so serious. I thought he was, hey, I was just happy to have a clean place to lay my head down at night. I was just happy to have three meals. I mean, I didn't have a place to go, and now I'm living in a, a million-dollar mansion with a chairman and a deacon of this church. And he taught me this valuable lesson. He said, and this sounds radical, David, I don't eat physically until I eat spiritually. And his life verse is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I thought that was strange. I thought that was really odd. And I said, you know, I need help, and I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be that radical. I mean, this guy's, I mean, he's successful by worldly standards, but he's kind of kooky. 
telling me that he doesn't eat before he uh, he doesn't eat before he reads God's word. Tells me he fasts one day a week for his two kids. I could tell you how successful they are in their walk with Jesus and in this world. This guy was radical, and it was founded on a relationship with Jesus and the Word of God. He brought me in like a son. I felt like I was sitting at the king's table. I was happy Tuesday taco night. I was ecstatic about the love and the uh, acceptance that this man poured on a guy that didn't deserve it. And so when I walked those streets of Boston and New York City, I might not have gone that far, and I might not have smelt that bad, and my clothes may not have been that tattered, but I was there. And you don't have to go that far to be hopeless and lost and without any sense of identity or future. But that's where I was and that's where Jesus found me. I'll tell you another passion I have is uh, uh, women, uh, uh, women with children and uh, no husbands for whatever reason. Listen, and we see it today. There's just, all of us want to be loved. All of us want to be accepted. But Let's be honest, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of dudes out there that are pretty cruddy. And they'll tell just about any woman that they meet, I love you. And what they're really saying is I lust after you for a moment. When I get what I want, I'm going to throw you in a heap and I'm going to move on to the next victim, right? We call them hustlers. We call them players. We got all kinds of name for these guys, right? But they're losers, and women are looking, and I'm not trying to, I'm not talking down, but women want that relationship. They want their nest builders. They want somebody by their side that there's mutual love, there's mutual respect, there's mutual values, there's mutual goals. And unfortunately, the women buy into this, I love you, instead of seeing it for what it is, I lust after you. And they find themselves with one, two, three, maybe even four kids behind them with one, two, three, maybe four missing men in action. And I break over that. Uh, Nicole and I have been involved, uh, not... not uh, not organized church ministry. Well, some of them, but we've been in organ. We've been involved and partnered from time to time with crisis pregnancy centers, living in homes with young women that are wrestling with what do I do with this with this baby. And then they carry the baby, determine they have baby, and we provided a place for them to live. And there was support so they could go out and learn job skills so that they wouldn't become dependent on the next clown that came down across their lives and said, I love you. And so I'm really passionate about that. And then I'm also really passionate about this. What really keeps me up, especially as it relates to the church, and I'm not talking about this church, but the, the big church, is biblical illiteracy. It just, biblical illiteracy drives me nuts. I really, and this is a strong word, I disdain, 
I disdain anyone in a position of authority in any church that teaches something other than what God's Word says. Every, every day we can open up the newspaper and we can see the fallout and the fighting and the battles going on over the issues. Right? But if we all came to a place where we understood that there's absolute truth, there's no room for some of this. There's no room for questioning. There's no room for debating. There's no room for saying, no, I'm going to doubt the rest of my life. I'm going to refuse or reject this the rest of my life. There's no room for that. And it just drives me nuts to see people's lives and churches torn apart because you get somebody in there that's teaching something other than God's holy word. And we see it every day. And it saddens me because think about this. At the end of the day, isn't everybody really just looking for truth? At the end of the day, aren't people just staring in the mirror and they're asking themselves, what is truth? You're not going to find it in pre-K. You're not going to find the truth in elementary. You're not going to find it in junior high. You're not going to find it in high school. You're not going to find it on the college campuses. And people are spending an enormous amount of their time looking for truth. Not a concept, but a person that can change their lives. Right? And if they can't find it at church, where will they find it? What's the chances of tripping and stumbling over it? Hotel room with a Bible that's in the drawer. I don't know about you, but many, many, when I travel, many hotels have even taken the Bible out of the drawer now. The Gideons did a great work there. I wonder how many people went to a hotel room to fire up the, the, the crack cocaine or, or uh, prostitution and something disturbed the event and uh, they're looking for something in the drawer and they find the Bible and they do the old shotgun approach and they plop it over and they read it and they're half high and half baked and they come to their senses and there's a, a moment of clarity and God's spirit rushes in and says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You're saved by grace through faith alone and not of good works lest any man should boast. Right? The power of God's Word, living Word, in a moment can radically change and transform an individual. And that's what God was trying to do through uh, uh, the life of Nehemiah and Ezra among his people. Now we're going to turn our attention to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. I'm going to wrap it up with this. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I want to be sensitive to the time. And you're probably already familiar with this truth. If you walked with Jesus for any amount of time and he's put something in your heart and you start stepping out in faith and you try to uh, respond to that, without a shadow of doubt, you're going to be met with resistance and criticism and negativity. Because quite honestly, it's a very personal relationship with Jesus and a personal mission and a personal vision. And people have their own agendas 
And more than likely, many people don't see what you see or hear what you see, and so they're going to oppose what you see, and they're going to oppose what you hear. And there's a pretty tough crowd that God's asking Nehemiah to do his work among. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, when Sanballat heard that we were building or rebuilding the wall, he exploded in anger, vilifying the Jews in the company of the Samaritan cronies and military. He let loose. What are these miserable Jews doing? Do they think they can get everything back to normal overnight? Make building stones out of make-believe? And at this, of course, there's always a leader, and then there's always a couple uh, behind the leader. In this particular situation, it was Tobiah, and he jumped in and he said, that's right. What do you think they're building? And how did Nehemiah respond? He responds with, oh, listen to us, dear God, we're so despised. Boomerang their ridicule on their heads. Had their enemies cart, off, cart them off as war trophies to a land of no return. Don't forgive them of their iniquity. Don't wipe away their sin. They've insulted the builders. And then here's Nehemiah's response. We kept at it. Repairing and rebuilding the wall, the whole wall was soon joined together halfway to its intended height because the people had a heart for the work. You read uh, uh, this chapter, you read uh, the book of Nehemiah, and you'll realize that there were seven different organized groups that attacked him at every corner. And in fact, there was one group that was so tenacious, they attacked him on five different occasions. Now, having pastored in the past, I believe that that one person that has enough energy and goal to attack you on five different uh, situations would be a deacon. And that's something you can only relate to if you're a pastor or have been a pastor. What's that? No. And again, there's always the small print in the asterisk. Because after all, we are, without a shadow of a doubt, a perfect church. Because without a shadow of a doubt, we are all perfect people. You get a good idea, right? Just go with a husband and wife. Guys, we get good ideas, don't we? Uh, there's a running joke in my house that if I want to do, I, I like do it yourself, right? I like to work with my hands. And my wife says, I start talking to her about, I'm going to do something uh, with this. Like I, I'm in, a, I'm in a, a five-year plan, a renovation plan of the bathroom upstairs, five years. That's pretty good. I've got some projects that I started that are still sitting out there undone. So my wife has a running joke. Whenever I come up with an idea for a plan, she says, oh my goodness, you're going to turn a $19.95 project into a $350 ordeal. Okay? If I go to Home Depot and Lowe's, I'm going to get lost. Why? Because I like all that stuff. And I like it in my garage. And when somebody calls me and they want something, I like to be the go-to guy. I got that. Now, I'm not as bad as Mike Yaka. He has everything. So I'm still going to him for some things. 
But the point is, as you know, when I sit down and I share, and I'm, I got this all written out, I got a budget, the whole nine yards, my wife's just shaking her head. She says, there's just no way this is ever going to get done in the time that you say that you're going to do it, and there's no way it's going to get done in the, uh, uh, with the money that you're talking about as well, right? And I know she's telling me the truth, but I take offense to that. She doesn't have enough faith and trust in me to get this done. <laughs> right? Start locking horns, criticism, complaining, right? Intense fellowship breaks out, <laughs> right? We're laughing and we're joking, right? As couples, but man, <clears throat> church can be messy too struggling and wrestling and trying to find the vision and the mission of God, struggling and wrestling, trying to find the resources and pull it together, struggling and wrestling with who's gifted and who's, who's, who's called in this area, who's gifted in this area. How do we structure this? How do we provide leadership, training? How do we mentor and disciple and turn these ministries over? Church is really messy by design, and that's a good thing because what it does is it forces us and drives us to Jesus because after all, it was his vision to begin with. It was his idea. If I come up with an idea, it's going to fail. I don't care how many people I have in my camp and the resources I have. It's going to fail because it's David's project. It's David's plan. It's David's idea. And that's why it's utterly important. It's crucial that the body at large is seized and gripped by something that's greater than themselves. The vision and the mission doesn't come from me. The vision and the mission comes out of heaven and it comes by way of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and he wraps his arms around a body of people and he pulls them in close. And when we get close enough and when we get clean enough, he begins to speak and talk and whisper to us. But as long as we stay away and as long as we stay dirty, he can't take us where he wants to go. Oh, but it's so sweet when he draws a body in. He starts working and encouraging and supporting and casting that vision. And people understand the roles and the responsibilities. Like, it's like going to a great symphony where you have uh, uh, hundreds of people playing different instruments. We, uh, my son... Uh, Zach had a concert at Bennett. He's in fifth grade. Let me tell you something. Uh, fifth grade, listen, I'm into music and I like music, but I'm telling you, I think there was, sounded like a couple cats and ducks were getting uh, murdered up there on stage. There's a lot of squawking and squeaking, and, and I'm not, I'm going to be honest here. My, my, quite honestly, my son doesn't practice a whole lot, and he was probably guilty of some of that. And, uh, but the point is, is when you go to a concert, it sounds, it sounds really bad. And it's like, wow, I hope I paid $50 for this. I hope they get their act together and it's worthwhile because right now I want to cut out and go to Taco Bell and listen to some uh, Twilight Paris or something because this is just awful, right? And they're practicing, they're squeaking, they're sc and then the conductor comes up. And we all like, we all look like, and all the eyes are lifted up, right? And then he, and it starts. And it's 
beautiful. And it's breathtaking. And there's so many master musicians that have mastered their instrument, their place and their role. Now, Zach, they're still trying to figure out, well, you know, their first chair, and I don't really think they're good enough for first chair. I think they're more like second or third chair. They're jockeying, right? They're not celebrating. They're jockeying for that position. But in church, there's no room for that. It's when we come together and he just starts singing and moving and pointing and looking and smiling. And that word is just coming out and it's flowing. And everybody by default knows the role and the responsibility and they're excited. And there's joy. And there's my God. I could have never thought that, dreamed that, come up with that, achieve it. That's what we need. We need something that's bigger than us as individuals, something bigger than us collectively, and we hear the master conductor leading, guiding, directing, and we're completely comfortable and fulfilled in the role that he's called us to. There's none of this, he said, she said, first chair, third chair, why them, not me? I wish I could play the violin as opposed to the trumpet. There's none of that. There's no room for that in the household of God. What a beautiful place and time that would be, right? Where's my Mike Tyson quote as I wrap up? Mike Tyson, before he fought Vander Holyfield, a reporter pulled him aside and said, hey, listen, aren't you the least bit worried about Vander Holyfield's uh, fight plan? And Mike Tyson's famous quote is, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth. Listen, talking from experience, if God gives you a plan or a vision or a mission... He's going to teach you defense. And he's going to teach you how to counter because they're going to come out of the woodwork. Everybody has a thought. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an agenda, whether they're engaged or not. And the masses, for the most part, sit on the sidelines where it's comfortable and safe and there's no risk. And they want to be the armchair quarterback on a Monday after the game's already been played. And they want to tell you what you can and can't do. How you can and cannot conduct yourself. And the critics are going to line up. One after another after another. I'm going to tell you this from personal experience. They're not worth your time and your energy. I had a seminary professor from Romania, and he said, hey, listen, 
you just keep your cart going and you're going to get enough distance between you and the barking dogs where they're going to get bored with you and turn around and bark at the next cart that comes by. And that's how it works. The key to fulfilling God's vision and mission for your life is focus. And then not focusing on what other people think, say, do, tell you to sit, tell you to stand, try to control. It's not about that. You have to stay focused. And the same way that Nehemiah and Ezra and God's people were focused when they were met with criticism, when they were met with the challenge, how did he respond? 13 chapters, 11 prayers. And that's what it all comes down to is focus. I like what Pastor Robin uh, shared uh, when he was here last week. He used a little different translation here, but he talked about, let your eyes, and this is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze, not a glance, directly before you. I like what Paul wrote, uh, keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating faith or finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in a place of honor right alongside God. So when you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Come to expect criticism and actually embrace it. Because one, it's a purification process. If I'm criticized, my natural instinct is to criticize somebody else. Right? Strike me, I'll strike you. Lash out at me, I'll lash out at you. But the growth and the maturity that comes in the midst of criticism is extraordinary. There's a process of purification. And then what I really like about those situations is this. It proves out God's vision to be true. That it's in His timing, His resources, His ways, He's going to get it done regardless of who's in and out, who's supportive, who's not supportive, because the vision and mission was born in heaven, and Jesus died for it, And it's an absolute guarantee for success as long as we stay close and focused and walk in lockstep with Him. Thanks for listening. That wraps up today's word. We are grateful you joined in. And if you would like to hear more or learn more about us, feel free to check things out over at newriverchurch.org. 